The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your hosts, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. From Embark's new headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good afternoon. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's East Region Market President, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. On this week's episode, we're bringing back Donald Thomas, a Managing Director in our FAS practice, to continue our discussion on common revenue recognition issues for construction companies. Adam, Donald, thanks so much for being here. Good to see you. Good to see you here. Good to be here. So, Adam, Donald, before we begin, why don't we tell our listeners something that they might not know about you? Yeah, so I don't spend all my time reading accounting stuff uh, day in, day out. I guess something unique about me, uh, I'm a big runner, so I've done, I think, 18 marathons in my in my life. It's, wow. I'll say I've put them on hold for the last couple mm. years, so maybe I need to bring something back. But for a while there, I was I was definitely into this marathon groove, constantly training, uh, done a lot of the big major runs, and so uh, you know, enjoy doing that stuff, getting out. Awesome, I love it, Donald. Uh, goodness gracious! Well, I was in the Navy for six years. Very was a cool. Chemist on nuclear submarines, the USS Boston, and um, and I was in Japan for the Sendai earthquake. That's, that's wild. Well, thank you so much for your service. Appreciate you both being here again. So Adam, previously we talked about technology companies often facing unique complexities yep. with their revenue recognition for a variety of different reasons. Is it fair to say that the same holds true for construction companies? Yeah, so you know, kind of like what we talked about um, in our last episode, you know, they're all still looking at that same five-step model. It's universal to all industries. Um, I think what makes it unique to, you know, in this case, construction and kind of engineering type companies is that previously, you know, prior to six oh or six oh six, you know, there was industry-specific guidance for a lot of these people, and so with the introduction of six oh six, it eliminated essentially that guidance and really kind of force them to kind of look under the framework of this five-step model and, and apply some of the judgments that are needed. And so when you think about some of the complexities that might present themselves, particular to this industry, it, I mean, it's, it's as simple as trying to figure out what those performance obligations are. Then there's numerous contract modifications with kind of construction contracts. If you just, if you've ever, you know, built a house, for example, change orders, all sorts of crazy things coming through. Uh, a lot of variable consideration components that we'll talk about a bit today. And even just trying to like, when you're thinking about recognition of revenue and trying to measure your progress towards, you know, what what has been satisfied as it relates to performance obligations, th- those types of factors uh, can make it complex for this particular group of companies. Okay. So Adam, let's get back to those five-step processes for revenue recognition and highlight some of the circumstances or issues that could be pre- present amongst themselves. Uh, Step one, we're identifying the contract with the customer, but what are some of the challenges that we would see in this step? Yeah, I think step one, you know, what makes it complex in a lot of cases here is just, you know, especially with a large scale construction project, for example, you've got so many parties that are maybe 
privy to components of that contract. So just deciphering out who in the contract is responsible for what, who's got rights to what, who's got obligations to what, who's the actual customer on components of the arrangements. Um, that can become complex there. Also, when you've got multiple contracts that are maybe all centered around a specific um, construction project, just trying to decipher whether or not you should be combining any of these contracts together and looking at them collectively, you know, thinking about where they entered into around the same time or at the same time, are they with the same customer? Are they not with the same customer? Those types of factors will, will trigger whether or not you can even combine contracts. So it's definitely, you know, I think a lot of times we are like, when you read step one is just identifying the contract. You're like, that should be easy. But like I said, just the circumstances of what we see in these arrangements, it, it, it just getting past step one can take some consideration for sure. Okay, so in addition to just entering the contract at or near the same time with the same customer, any other considerations that need to be met to combine? Yeah, so if you're thinking about like you've got multiple contracts, again, you feel like they're all with the same customer at or near the same time, you know, there are a few additional factors um, that, you know, you'd have to at least meet one of them to combine that contract. So things you think about is when you're looking at those separate contracts is like where they negotiated kind of as a package. So they really serve kind of a single commercial objective. If that's the case, it makes sense to combine those. Um, if you're looking at kind of the consideration in each contract, maybe one is very light on the consideration and one is very heavy on the consideration. So like individually, they don't seem to make a ton of sense, but collectively just the economics of it might make more sense. Uh, because one is kind of in contemplation of the other it might be another factor um, to combine. And then the other would be is if you've got goods or services that are promised on a, on a single performance obligation, but they're spread across multiple contracts, you, you would combine them in that case if that factor was met. Okay. It, I, I think I actually have a good example of this. I had a client that was bidding on 13 separate phases of a single contract or a single project. I believe it was a wastewater treatment plant. And they might win 13 of the contracts or 13 of the phases, or they may not be able to win any of the phases. The determination would be based on price, on ability to complete it, on, on, on their um, references and so forth. So in addition to those 13 phases, there was gonna be an overall project manager that would facilitate and coordinate everything between the different contractors. And so my client was bidding on, on eight phases and they were wondering, um, they, were bid on, they won eight phases and their question was, did they need to combine those? Uh, because the winners would all be announced on the same day and they'd need to complete the contracting within 30 days, they questioned whether or not they would need to combine. Um, in, so in this circumstances, it was clear that the, the contracts would be entered into on or about the same time. Uh, the, the standard doesn't define honor about the same time. Most of my clients have used 90 days as an accounting policy for at about the same time. In, in principles-based or objectives-oriented accounting, um, there really is no bright line. So really the next factors are to consider, you know, what Adam talked about, where the contracts negotiated as a single commercial package. Uh, does the consideration of one contract depend on the other? And are the goods and services a a single performance obligation. Now, given that they could have won one phase or all 13 phases, it was clear that, that the, there was, they were not negotiated as a single commercial package. They had separate bids. They were bidding on each phase 
competitively with other contracts. And so in this scenario, the contracts were not combined because there wasn't, they were not a single, negotiated as a single commercial package. The pricing in one wasn't dependent on the pricing in the other, and it wasn't a single performance obligation in this case. Okay, so then Donald, the question is, could contracts with different customers entered into at or near the same time be combined? So the, the FASB specifically thought about this. They even uh, uh, talked to the Office of the Chief, Chief Accountant at the SAC. And the FASB ultimately determined that contracts with separate customers um, should never be combined. Now, if you look at the Boeing 10K, what you'll see in the notes is that they combine contracts for a commercial airline program. But they're not combining the revenue contracts, they're combining the cost of sales or the cost elements. And because it can take, it can take let's say, 10,000 hours to build the first airplane of a, of a new family, and it might only take five or 10,000 hours to build the 100th airplane, there's a significant amount of, of costs incurred in the learning curve. And so what Boeing does is aggregate all those costs recognize costs at actual, recognize COGS at an estimate, uh, but that's cost of sales. That has nothing to do with revenue. So you would never combine revenue contracts with separate customers. Okay. And, you know, speaking of contracts, I know in the construction industry, it's very common to have change orders, modifications to contracts during the construction period. Adam, you mentioned building homes, all of those change orders that would happen. How did these impact construction entities? Okay. So construction contracts frequently, um, contractors frequently agree to changes in price or scope. Um, There are also claims the contractor, due to no fault of their own, due to issues from the client, may incur unanticipated costs that result in delays, and so they have claims. Um, under, the sta- under, the, under 606, change orders and claims are accounted for as contract modifications. Um, for change orders, this generally occurs when the change order is approved. Um, in terms of approving the change order, what you're looking for is agreement on the scope, an agreement on the price. Oftentimes the agreement on the scope occurs before agreement on the price. Okay, and so Adam, moving over to step two and identifying performance obligations, I can imagine in a construction contract, this could be a large undertaking given the scope of these arrangements. What are some of the common issues that might arise in these situations? Yeah, so I think the the biggest thing here is really you know, it's tying it back to looking at all those identified goods or services that are promised and really figuring out which ones are truly distinct and 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 distinct in, in the context of how 606 frames it. So, you know, you may have a contract, for example, that has a ton of different promises, right? Like the construction of a large building, for example, probably has numerous promises if you were to think about all the things it's saying that's going to be done to construct that building. But and if you looked at any one of them individually on their own, you would say, yeah, that's a distinct thing I'm getting, or that's a distinct component of the construction of this, of this building. But, you know, a second element to that, to that assessment of distinct under 606 is not only whether it's kind of distinct on its own, like someone could benefit from that, from that good or service, 
um, as it stands or with their own you know, resources, but it's also, is it distinct within the context of the contract itself? And does it stand on its own within that contract? And that's, that's where a lot of judgment tends to come in when you're thinking about step two. So Adam, you talk a little bit about distinct. Give some illustrations around that and what that would look like. Yeah, I think it's important. Um, so let's, let's look at an example to help, you know, like I said, distinguish what it means to be distinct within the context of the contract, because that's probably the bigger piece when you're trying to figure out whether or not a certain promise, good or service is, is truly its own performance obligation. So like, assume you've got a, you know, a contractor, they're going to build a single structure. You know, if you think about what it takes to build a structure, it's tons of different goods and services, right? You need all the raw materials. So the building materials, the wood, the nails, the insulation, all the electric stuff. I'm not a home builder, so obviously you can tell by my, <laughs> my, my rambling there, but then also the services, right? So like the labor, the work, you know, the people that are actually doing the construction itself, the project managers that are helping manage the project, you know, all of those things, if you were to look at individually and to say, you know, is that something that this customer could benefit from on its own? And you're like, yeah, of course, that's all, those are all additive things to the customer that they're getting. But when you move into that second scenario about whether it's distinct in the context of the contract um, and you actually look at the contract and kind of what the customer is being promised in this example, it's, it's this single structure here. So really when you look at all those individual items, it's, it's not so much that they're all distinct on their own within the context of the contract, but if you were to combine them all together and what the customer is actually being promised, which is the structure, that combined performance obligation would be distinct on its own. So that's what we mean when we're thinking about like whether or not something is distinct or not. Um, there are other scenarios though, where you could have multiple things promised that um, could result in multiple performance obligations. So maybe you've got a promise to build two different facilities. So one's a manufacturing facility in this location, and then maybe one's a warehouse in another location. You know, they all use a bunch of different combined inputs to the transfer of that good or service, but those two elements on their own aren't necessarily something that are transformative to each other. They would stand alone within the contract as a, as a performance obligation for each of those buildings. And so that could be a case where you would have something that's using multiple inputs to create something, but you wouldn't then further combine those two, those two performance obligations. Yeah, Adam, as somebody who just recently built a new home, you're bringing back all of my nightmares <laughs> as you talk through this construction process again. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, in step three, we determine transaction price. Yep. What are some of the unique challenges we see for this industry in helping to determine those? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's similar to other industries when you've got um, just different elements that go into the transaction price. So again, it's that kind of that concept of variable consideration that comes into play in trying to measure that. So if you think about a typical construction type contract, there's there's a lot of times there's some unique provisions in there around on what they get paid. So sometimes there's incentive payments, right? Like if they meet a certain deadline and have the construction ready by a certain date. Maybe there's an uptick in the amount of cash or money that they're going to get for completing that project. Um, on the reverse side, maybe there are penalties that they could incur if they don't finish something by a certain time frame. And so that's something else that could be in there. There could be provisions that change the price based on how many change orders you have or the frequency of those orders that could impact pricing. Uh, we talked about customer claims, for example, as another element. So all of those different things that tend to rear their head um, in this situation, 
are, are components that can make step three a little bit more confusing. And then one other thing that's um, interesting that we see as a probably a more common issue when we think about construction um, entities themselves is, is this idea of a significant financing component that may be in the arrangement. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you think about a typical construction contract, they're generally longer term in nature. Um, and because of that, you know, longer horizon, a lot of them have maybe very set payment provision dates that are based on milestones or other different, different triggers in there. There can be a need to evaluate based on the kind of mismatched in timing of when certain things are being delivered to payments, if there is actually a component of that that could be considered a financing component, which then triggers some additional accounting under 606. Okay. Now, Donald, let's dig into some of these specifics then. Let's assume a construction entity has a contract that requires them to pay penalties if the work is not completed by a specific date and provides contractually specific penalties for each day the project may or may not be delayed. Do these liquidated damages constitute variable consideration? How should we be thinking of that? Liquidated damages typically actually are variable consideration. Um, you need to look at, at the fact that liquidated damages are really a penalty or a, a concession or rebate, uh, an amount that you're giving back to the customer. And so because of that, those are specifically mentioned in step three in terms of variable consideration. So you'd need to estimate the amount of liquidated damages that are likely. You need to make that estimate at the inception of the arrangement, and then you'll, you'll revisit that estimate each reporting period. Some of these provisions can also be similar to a warranty provision, and you need to apply judgment. If the amounts are being paid to a third party to fix the item, in that case, it's much more like a cost accrual type warranty. So if you're paying the customer, they're liquidated damages. If you're paying a third party to fix something, then it's more like a warranty provision. Okay, so let's talk more about the estimates uh, for variable considerations. How do construction entities go about doing that? There's really, there's really two approaches. The expected value, which is really a, 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 a probability-weighted approach, and that's where there are multiple potential outcomes. And then you have the most likely amount. And, and the most likely amount is when the outcome is binary. Either I'm going to pay $50,000 or I'm not going to pay $50,000. And so you really need to apply judgment in terms of which method. Again, if it's binary, you're going to use most likely amount. If there's a range of potential outcomes, you're going to use expected value. Okay. Now, I know variable consideration has a constraint on the estimated amount. What do construction entities consider here when they're evaluating how much variable consideration to include in transaction prices? You're really going to need to look at what is your experience with similar contracts. Um, what are the uncertainties that may arise in later stages of, of a long-term contract? Right? The further you get out, the harder it is to recognize what may happen at the beginning. So those uncertainties can have a, a profound impact. And then factors that are outside our control. The evaluation can be difficult. We need to consider variable consideration from unpriced change orders and claims because of the inherent uncertainty about what's going to happen in the future related to those. Companies need to estimate the transaction price and they really need to evaluate the constraint on 
variable consideration throughout the term of the contract at the inception of the arrangement and each reporting period. So Adam, over to you, how does the accounting work when a significant financing component exists within these contracts? Yeah, it's, it's a good question because, you know, there are the, the arrangements that we see in construction contracts often leads to a mismatch in the timing of payments versus maybe when some of the goods or services are received. And so that's typically an indicator that there could potentially be a significant financing component. It doesn't always say that just because you have that mismatch, that's always going to be the conclusion. So you definitely have to kind of look at the, the substance of what's causing that mismatch. And, you know, an example of that, particular to this industry, is that a, a lot of times construction contracts will have the ability for customers to retain a certain amount of what they are going to pay the construction entity. And it's really kind of used as a form of insurance or security that the construction entity itself will actually complete the project that they've been hired to do. And so, you know, if you look at the substance of that and that's what's causing the mismatch, then, you know, in applying judgment, you would typically conclude that that is not a significant financing component, just kind of based on the nature of that. Um, but if, if that's not the case and there really is truly a mismatch here and it's kind of viewed as that, you know, you're, you are financing the project for the customer because they're not having to pay, um, in relation to when they're receiving goods or services, so you're kind of just giving them a little bit of a benefit of having to, to hold off paying, then you could have a financing component and you would need to adjust your transaction price. And so that is something to keep in mind is, you know, if you've got that to make sure you're including that adjustment in the transaction price. Um, but I would highlight there is a practical expedient. So if the significant financing component does exist, but the period that's kind of causing that mismatch between the payments and the transfers of the good or services is less than a year, then the standard does allow you to kind of ignore that significant financing component. So it's only in longer term situations that you would then have to consider the adjustment to the transaction price. Okay, great, Adam. Now tell me, do we see a lot of issues with allocation of transaction price for construction entities? So not usually. I feel like, you know, step four here, allocating transaction price in general. I mean, it just kind of follows the normal guidance around standalone selling prices and just, um, you know, understanding how that allocation could work. I think if there's any complexities, it might be around allocating certain discounts or incentives if they're present and kind of figuring out whether or not it relates to the entire arrangement. And so you would allocate it across all performance obligations or, you know, in some circumstances, you may have a specific discount or incentive that is applicable to just one or only a few performance obligations in an arrangement. So if you're going to make that assertion that it doesn't apply equally across all of them, there is specific guidance you kind of have to factor in that you have to meet in order to just kind of point it at a specific performance obligation. So you'll definitely want to walk through that um, to make sure that, that that conclusion makes sense. Okay, well, let's move on to our final step of the revenue recognition model, step five. I think the only thing that it leaves on the table is the recognition of revenue. Are most construction contracts an overtime form of revenue recognition? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that generally, um, you know, transfer of control for construction type contracts will occur over time when you just think about the nature and the long-term um, terms of those contracts. 
Um, I mean, I'll caveat, you should always kind of do a contract by contract analysis and always make sure that that still makes sense when you're thinking about the timing of revenue recognition. Um, but that that is typically the answer. And so when you do have overtime recognition, I think where there is a bit of, you know, kind of some elements here of a little bit complexity is, you know, you got to then think about the measurement of progress of that overtime recognition. And so with a large construction project, it's trying to figure out what do we use to base that measurement of progress of that, that long-term project itself. And so the standard itself outlines two like methods. So there's basically something in the input method or the output method. And so you can use either of those methods. Um, and then within each of those methods, it's trying to think about what is the most relevant kind of factor or criteria used to then measure the progress. So for example, in an input method, you might think about things such as like your costs incurred against your total expected costs to be incurred on the project as an element of measuring progress. Or from an output method, you may view it as like this project's got five milestone stages to get to completion. And so as we get to each of those different milestone stages, that's a portion of revenue that we'll recognize. So there's there's some judgment and flexibility in there and how you measure that progress. But um, that's probably the thing that most companies in this space have to kind of navigate. What if management can't determine how to measure progress? What happens there? Yeah. You know, if they don't have a reasonable basis to measure progress, then the standard itself will basically say you can't recognize any revenue until it can be measured. So 606 is a little bit more strict on um, recognizing revenue. So that's kind of one of the, the, the differences between maybe some of the legacy guidance. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that if the entity can determine that a loss will not be incurred on the project, um, the standard does require that the entity at least recognize revenue up to the amount of any costs that it's incurred. Okay. Now, Donald, I know under the legacy guidance for construction companies, they could use a completed contract recognition model. Is the completed contract method still appropriate in all cases? Can't use completed contract anymore. Actually, I have an amusing anecdote. I, I used to work for an audit partner that worked on a lot of early stage companies, and he always said he wanted to use the completed company method. So we won't recognize revenues until they go out of business. <laughs> Obviously, a pretty conservative accountant. Funny enough, he's the, uh, he's the CFO of a large technology company right now. So he probably has a very different perspective of uh, completed company method. I'm sure. Um, so the, the first thing we need to do is is evaluate if the performance obligation is satisfied over time. In other words, is control transferred over time? Um, and, and then the next thing we do is look at whether or not, um, if, if none of the three overtime criteria are met, then we look to transfer, we, we look at the point in time criteria. Um, ASC 606 did completely um, get rid of the completed contract method. Okay. Now, are there any other nuances in using cost incurred as part of the input method to measure progress? It seems like it could be a little confusing. A absolutely. And there are some specific complexities. The, 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 the guidance talks about uninstalled materials where you have a significant, you have a significant component that, that has a high value of cost or high percentage of cost to the project. And when you have those uninstalled materials to to include 
those, the costs on those materials as a measure of cost completed to date, it's not going to be pro proportionate to, to my delivery of, of, of satisfying that performance obligation. Okay. So how does this change the measurement of progress, or does it? It, it does change, and ASC 606 uses the elevator example, where the the, the company has a contract to, to, to build a building, and a very significant and expensive part is the elevator. They don't take part in the in the design of the elevator. The elevator is you know off the shelf, I guess, as in as far as elevators are on the <laughs> shelf to begin with. Um, if if you were to include those uninstalled materials that elevator that was delivering and sitting in your yard, then would overstate the measure of progress towards completion. And so you would remove that elevator from the cost to cost method in determining how much of your contract was complete. And then you would include that at zero margin. And so you're only recognizing margin on those costs that, uh, that you've completed. Thanks for that example. One thing before we close here, I know construction contracts include a lot of warranty provisions in them. We haven't touched on any of that yet. So what do companies need to think about when it comes to an accounting for those types of provisions? Yeah, so you're right. I mean, most construction contracts have some element of a warranty um, associated with the goods or services that that builder is providing. So you know, construction defects that they'll fix for a certain period of time, um, you know, that either is a stated warranty term or sometimes, you know, certain builders or whatever may just based on their customary business practices have an implied warranty. Uh, but when you're thinking through warranties that may exist in the contract, it's really important to decipher kind of the nature of its, the warranty itself and whether it's for more of like an assurance type warranty, which is, you know, fixed defects that were in the construction of the, the building, for example, or is it more of kind of like a service type warranty? And, and I say that because assurance type warranties are not considered a promised good or service in the context of the contract. So it wouldn't necessarily be like a separate performance obligation that you got to worry about in, when going through these five steps. Um, instead, those are really accounted for as true like warranty obligations and other parts of U.S. GAAP. And so, you know, you estimate the cost of satisfying those warranties and, and accrue that cost whenever, you know, the, the construction entity itself thinks it's probable that they're going to incur some type of liability with the construction and they feel like they can reasonably estimate um, what those costs might be. Um, other types of warranties you sometimes see added to a contract in addition to the assurance type warranty is, is what they call these service type warranties. And so it's where a customer may have an option to purchase a warranty that's separate. Um, and it kind of goes beyond fixing the defects that existed at the time of sale. Um, and so that's viewed as more of a service type warranty. And so in that case, those warranties actually represent a separate promise service, right? So in the context of thinking through revenue recognition, those service type warranties are going to often be a separate performance obligation. And again, you would, you know, they'd be included in that transaction price and a component of the transaction price would be allocated to it. And then, you know, similar to kind of like when you think about a, a service type warranty and this concept of stand ready obligation is if you've got a warranty period and you can, if something qualifies under that service type warranty over that period, you're able to just pick up the phone and talk to somebody and say, I need this taken care of. 
um, it'll it'll generally lean itself towards just overtime recognition over that warranty period. Okay. Now, Donald, back to you. We covered a lot of topics today. Anything that we're leaving out that we need to hit on? I really think the last thing people don't understand is lost contracts. So the FASB didn't readdress lost contracts in 606. Um, ASC 605 covered lost contracts on a, on a piecemeal basis. I think there are six to 10 different pieces of piecemeal guidance on, on lost contracts. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a dinosaur, so I think about construction type contracts as SOP 811 going way back in the day. But the guidance was ASC 60535. Um, 606 carried forward that guidance. And in general for construction type contracts, when you have a loss, you need to immediately recognize that loss in the period that you've identified the loss. Um, you, you will typically do this on the contract level. Um, you've got an accounting policy level to accounting policy election to apply it on a performance obligation level, but really effectively for construction type contracts, there's typically one performance obligation in the contract. And, and that's the last thing, a nice little piece of technical accounting to talk about on Friday night at the bar. Adam, Donald, it's been great speaking with you guys today on this revenue recognition topic. Truly appreciate your time. And for our listeners, thanks so much for listening to Accounting Matters Podcast, powered by Embark. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.